Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. If you listen on the Entail app, that's E-N-T-A-L-E, photos, links and videos of what we're talking about will pop up as you listen. Have a look. Uh, hi, I'm Emily um, and I'm absolutely fine, but the battery on my phone now basically goes down within about 15 minutes of leaving the house and I now I know it's so stressful like sharp intake of breath from the gallery <laughs> such a nightmare and I now find I have to carry like a plug a wire an, an actual battery pack almost everything so that's how I am I'm basically I've got a flat battery permanently all right Annabelle mm-hmm. how are you I'm absolutely fine, but I've just turned off the air conditioning in the tiny studio, and I know, because it was sort of Baltic, and I know that within five minutes I'll be slightly sweating, and I'll be trying to creep around in such a way that the that the recording doesn't pick it up to turn it back on again. Um, so just know that that's what's happening during this episode. I'm going to be locked in a dance of death with my body temperature. Um, but no one will care, because today's guest is a stonker. And we're a little bit intimidated because this woman is brave. Kate Silverton is one of our most popular and versatile journalists. So versatile that she's been a war reporter, competed in 2018 Strictly Come Dancing, and tackled some of the UK's most perilous rivers by kayak for her programme, Ultimate Wild Water. (laughs) She's clearly a maniac. But she also looks inwards, and she is training as a child psychologist. Her documentary about childhood trauma and toxic stress airs on BBC One on the 23rd of March. She seems to be reinvention in motion, and we are a little dazzled. Kate Silverton, how are you? Oh, actually, am I allowed to say, first of all, before I'm really honest about having a hot flush in a minute because of the heating, how lovely it is just to be here. Thank you for that gorgeous introduction. Thank you for coming. So, yeah, so um, I am absolutely fine. However, I am about to have a hot flush and join you. (laughs) Do you know what? Let's cut out the middleman and turn it back on again. (laughs) (laughs) She's having cycled it furiously with a jumper. And I'm also absolutely fine. However, can I please have another six hours in the day? Yes. Is that possible? It is so hard. Can I ask for that here? Yeah, sure. We can't give it to you. What would you you do with them? Oh, God, every day. So, well, at the moment, I've just come back from holiday, so I would be washing for probably about four of those hours, uh, picking up my kids' clothes and sort of sorting all of that out. And then I would just have two hours of me time, which I just don't get, which I'm sure we all share. Yoga. Oh, a bit of Pilates. Yeah. What is that what yeah. you do? Pilates, two hours. Well, I'm only just, two hours is I, not enough because you can't even dis- get to the class and then come back and Pilates have a is generally oh, about God. a 53 minute situation. Yeah. Which means it needs to be within a 10 minute drive away. And with changing, that means you can just about do it in an hour and a half if you don't wash your hair. Yeah. Who's got an hour and a half? Exactly. Yeah. That's why, just, that's why I say to my husband, it puts me off from going because it's a whole hour and a half. Do I have that time? I met Annika the other day at the gym, Annika Rice, and she was like, should we do the Reformer Pilates together and then we'll do it an hour and a half of yoga? I was like, Annika, seriously, that's you have like- two and a half hours in your day? And she said, it's my one day that I have to myself. I was told when I had a really big health check recently that it is incredibly important to go for a walk, not to go anywhere, not to storm towards anything, but literally to just go to a meander. Mm. And they told me to meditate, they told me to cut this out, take these supplements, do all this shit, and I've done it all, and the only thing I haven't managed is the daily walk. So why is that just because it feels a bit weird to go for a walk without having a dog? Because I find that quite strange. I I I don't have have time. You kind of go, who are you? When's the time? Yeah. Yeah, we try and amble a little bit. Every now and then we we walk to a meeting instead of 
taking an Uber. Or, but, you know, that again is having the luxury of the, t- of the time, yes. of being able to afford the She's time. She's losing her earrings. That would be taking my earrings. I'm so hot. I'll be taking <laughs> off my dress in a minute. <laughs> she started. <laughs> no idea what's about to happen in the studio. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Did you get really, really hot and sweaty doing Strictly? Yes. The costumes themselves, they must be. Are they like. No, you know what wigs? happens? Oh, well. No, you know what actually happens? And I've never, ever had it happen in my life. And I've been scared on many many occasions I don't know if anyone else has ever shared this but your feet sweat when you are petrified really no. and clearly I've never been at that level of petrified sweaty because I've feet. never had sweaty feet before. sweat beyond cami like sweat sweat beyond I can't walk in these little shoes because I, I was will about slip slide slippery. away and there was Billy who was this amazing um, guy and he's about five foot four or something and he'd go Kate tits and teeth tits and teeth and I'm like, alright Billy and then he'd check my earrings for me to make sure they weren't going to fall out and all I could say is, Billy, I need tissues, I need tissues. And then poor Billy would have the job of stuffing. <laughs> I was like, seriously, Billy, this is above and beyond. You do not have to sort my feet. No, 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 this is my job. I'm doing a bad impression of you, Billy, I'm sorry. But but anyway, and he would stuff these tissues in my... I mean, it was just, talk about humiliating. I had Aliash, the beautiful god-like Aliash, standing I mean, next to me. So and there's beautiful. me in my hormonal state and petrified <laughs> state feet. going, can you just sort my feet out? What um, about your yeah. head? I get a really sweaty head. No, it was just the feet. Just the feet. Yeah. Maybe it was just the whole thing. Everything, all the water just pooled oh. down to your. Uh, even to the as you're talking about it, I literally have got Do anxiety. Still, also, I have anxiety <sighs> thinking about how stressful it must have been to because you were not a dancer, no. right? I mean, far, you know, far from there it. are so a lot of them that are dancers. Sort of, sort of semi fully functioning human woman who's had a career and isn't 21, and then has to wear next to nothing. Oh, I know. I mean, I know. first of all. What, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> That's what I was thinking when I was standing on the red carpet next to Ashley Roberts and Stacey going, what the hell? Oh, my God. There was a bit of me. Um, I mean, I was asked many, many years ago when I should have done it, frankly, when I had the figure and all the rest of it for it. And then uh, I was too busy going off to like Iraq and Afghanistan and doing all these things that were terribly exciting and professionally really fulfilling. And then you get to the point where you think, That's kind of the last hurrah, actually. And there was this giddy bit of me that just thought, fuck it. I am, you know, I can do this. And then, of course, the reality bites. My husband says I, I suffer from PMA, which is positive mental <laughs> attitude. So I, I kind of, you know, I always say, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And then when I'm in something, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? And that was that point. And that you're so exposed. But I'd got past the point and I thought, this is me. And, and actually, if I'm going to walk the walk and do uh, a lot of sort of psychotherapy and, and a lot of uh, counselling, I need to be able to say, look, I've faced probably every last fear that I've ever had. And that probably was one of them because I'm not a performer. To be up there literally wearing sort of a dress no bigger than a doily, <laughs> you're kind of, you know, that is challenging itself. And then when you get past that, you kind of go, that's it. I've done it. So when I first started, I did feel, I felt ridiculous and you're with this really gorgeous young man isn't and it the you worst know, thing oh, to God. be an adult woman to feel ridiculous yes. it's a really terrible feeling yes. yeah yeah that's, yeah i mean yeah there's what <laughs> kind of um there's there's a dance move where you have to open your legs and jump and open your legs and jump. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you can't you can't you're like do, i just can't do, do this yes. yes really and there were many times when i got the giggles it i could only get the giggles myself it's nice that i can now share that with you because yeah. You know, he'd be going on my leg, on my, and I'm thinking, mate, I am really on your leg. Seriously, I, you know, I can feel every bit of you. I can't get any more on it. <laughs> 
is when Happy giggles to myself thinking, this is ridiculous. But when you see, that's the other thing, isn't it? Is when things get so ridiculous yes. that you can you can enjoy yes. the inaneness of it, if there's a word, inaneness, yeah. but sort of, you know. Um, and so I did love it for that. And you did really well. I did all right. And you and were magnificent. And I have to say, I, watching it as a grown-up woman, was like, go all power to you. <laughs> okay, pussycat doll, get out of the way. Kate Silverton's Also, coming. pussycat doll, totally cheating. Total cheat. Been a professional dancer for years. And so you, are, you spend all that time with your dance partner and they train you. You turn up, and I, I remember now, and I think, bless me, because it was bravery then was pretty much an ignorance of the consequences. I had no idea what was in store and I kind of was giddy about turning up this dance studio. <laughs> I bought all this kind of, do you remember Pineapple Studios? Yes. I bought all this leg kit. Warmers. Yeah. Oh my God. I literally Absolutely. bought the whole kit. <laughs> and I'm did you have leg warmers? Um, I probably didn't go that far, but I did have a wraparound oh, top. A wraparound oh, top? Yeah. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. Fame. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so when I turned up on that first day, giddy, and then they start taking you through and you just think, I have no idea. You know, I don't even know what a plie was. You know, I, I stopped ballet at three years old. So you are with good reason. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, you know, to start on a Monday morning and then get to fr- Thursday, you only have four days to learn, you know, learn steps, never mind actually sort of move fluidly. I just thought, I did think I am in way over my head and I had to keep taking myself to the loo going, must not cry, must not cry, you're a grown woman, this is just dancing. But there was a real intensity to it. And of course you do feel that you're letting, there's a kind of Stockholm syndrome element of you don't want to let your professional partner down. So you want to put everything into it. And so you get past that once you realise that you can actually put a dance together in the space of a few days and get through it and start enjoying it. Because I thought there's no point me doing this if I'm not going to enjoy it. So as much as I was petrified, I also pushed myself and thought, no, you've, you've chosen to do this. Get with it. Stop. You know, don't just go for it. And then presumably you hit a sweet spot, which is amazing in any professional activity where you realise you, you kind of know what you're fucking doing. You can do it. Yeah. That must have been amazing. That must have been as good as Afghanistan and, there's, and there's Iraq in some high, ways. There's a high that, yeah. And I think looking at, if you look at anyone's brainwaves, you'll see the alpha brainwaves increase. When you're doing anything sort of rhythmic, dancing, drumming, all these things, there's a reason why we've had tribal communities do this because it does actually have a really positive impact. So you are joyful. When you see these people go, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. You are literally sort of your endorphins are through the roof. So there is a natural element of it. And then, as you say, there's a professional sort of, wow. And and I wanted to get that out to everybody to say, look, if I can stand there after four days and do a dance, literally anybody can. Had you been an anxious person at all prior to that? Are you, were you, are you a worrier in any way? Or? Um, I, I would say I would be like anybody else. What I've always done is I challenge myself. So I don't really look at competing against anybody else, but I look at myself and if something scares me, I have an urge to overcome it. I don't like being beholden to my fears. So sometimes I will, um, as we all do, depend on a crutch. And for me, it's probably food. I go, oh my God, give me a bagel, I'm doing Strictly. Yeah. Which is, you know, then you go, oh my God, I've eaten a bagel, I might as well eat another one. Because <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm doing Strictly. I right. 10 bagels for the Strictly the <laughs> <laughs> So there's an element that I suppress using, as we all do, natural sort of substances to kind of go, I can't face it. And then I kind of go, okay, now you're bageled out. 
you've got to get into that dress and get on with it. So I then have a word with myself and then I overcome it. So it's a process. I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I do I do force myself to do things that scare me. I, I think, think that's a really that's a really good because I think a really good instinct to have actually because I think most people see the frightening thing and then just don't but also, go towards I it. Think it's yeah, because the high you get from challenging yourself is far beyond not doing it. So, you know, I think it's that thing. But there's just also trying. something about being a person who says yes, because you yes. can say yes to something before you actually intellectually and emotionally engage with what is going to be asked of you. Yeah. Um, the PMA comes into it, then. P- which I don't suffer from. Um, and, um, and then, and then so, so things like the kayaking, which was like, like that was it strictly is terrifying in one way. This was life threateningly frightening. Yeah. So why do you say yes to that, Britain's most dangerous waters in a canoe? Yeah, that's a good question. Why did I say yes to that? Again, I think I think because if you get a sense when you're younger of the thrill you get from risk taking, and I mean positive risk taking, I guess, from you know, and this is where teenagers, and again, coming back to sort of neuroscience and what we know about teenage brains is that we are programmed to take risks because otherwise we wouldn't have gone beyond the cave. So, you know, there was always going to be a rite of passage for, for young kids, especially young men, and they would go out and they would do, they would take risks and go beyond the boundaries of what was safe because otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't yeah. progress. So that remains in us. We all have that sort of evolutionary drive. So I think for me, it's, it's always been, that's quite exciting. I yeah. like. I like to do stuff. So I was a competitive swimmer when I was younger. And I think if you if you can if you if you taste that when you're younger, you know what that tastes like. You know that you can push through it. It's there's you know, there's often pain associated with things, um, you know, with pushing the boundaries. But actually, if you know what it tastes like, it's quite delicious. Do you know, and then that's such a good point, because addictive. I always slightly laugh to myself when someone says I was a gymnast at school. <laughs> as that proves something. But in a way, it absolutely mm. does, as you say. Yeah. It you have an instinct you, and you for get a sense, challenge. Yeah. And you get a sense of that natural endorphin hit. And so that's quite nice. And so actually then why not, you know, why not go for it? So I think coming back to the kayaking, I've always been really adventurous. I went off and traveled around Zimbabwe and I was on a kibbutz in Israel, all from sort of 17, 18. I went off traveling and um, and sort of, and took two years out of university so I could satiate that. I don't come from a privileged family. I had to keep coming back and then working, working in tea shops and things to pay for it. But there was a there was an urge to be curious and go out in the world. So I guess I've always had that, and I always attribute that to my dad, who got me reading Wilbur Smith books when I was really young. <laughs> Did you love that? He's so like, good. Yeah. My dad loved Wilbur Smith. Really? Yeah, my dad. That's why Wilbur I named my Smith son too. Wilbur after oh, Wilbur Smith. Did you? Yeah. Sweet. And then his wife got in touch to say we he's never met another Wilbur. Can we come and visit you? No. no. I was literally. Did that happen? Yes. What was Wilbur yes. Smith like? Oh, well, I'm still in touch with them, and I oh. I'm I now help with their foundation sponsoring young writers, young adventure writers. So your new challenge is more emotional than physical. Mm. So you've got this programme landing in a couple of weeks time um, about, am I right in saying it's about childhood trauma and toxic stress. So what are you looking at? So it's a panorama, which obviously by their nature are investigations. And what prompted it for me was looking at violent crime to begin with. And I've been doing a lot of work looking at childhood trauma, as you say, and how it shapes us. So what we experience when we're very young, how it shapes what we become. And that includes from a biological perspective. So how our brain actually changed is determined by what we experience when we're very young 
So it's been fascinating. We have been into hospitals, working with the police, um, with the violence reduction unit, um, all of these different bodies that are now working in this multidisciplinary, um, multidisciplinary approach, if I could even say that. And, and it's yes, it's been really interesting to see the results and to test them and to look at whether some of these um, uh, lessons, I guess we could call them, but just some of what we've uncovered and, and looked at could be replicated elsewhere when it comes to reducing violent crime. What about your studies? Why did yeah, so, you decide to study it? So I, my degree was in child psychology. Way Ori back your when. original. That one. was the original. So it's a science degree. I love it. Way back when. Way the back original when. written on parchment, <laughs> I an ancient yeah. scroll. Yeah. That was years it was. ago. This is Don't where we were at. Exactly. God. Before computers. Practically. When I was travelling, I was sending home blue airmail letters. Yeah. So was I. Also, yeah. I'd like to say that I started most of my university without the internet. Yeah. Handwritten essays. Yes, exactly. Anyway, sorry. Oh, no. Saskia, the producer. Thank is you. This is why I feel at home yes, here. Exactly. So, in <laughs> days of yore, <laughs> <laughs> when the pigeon carriers would send the lectures. Yeah. Oh, I do remember, yes. Um, so, in the good old days. Uh, so and always, then, so really, it's always been It's an always been there. And then I had years of, of, of not being able to get pregnant. And, um, and I think there was this sort of big resistance of I'm never going to be a mother. How long did it take you? Oh, well, so I met my husband uh, at 35. And although I knew he was pretty special, then I was commitment phobic for like another two years. And then by that time, were you running when, off to like war zones? Like, yes, Hi, yes. Bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's how we met when I was going off to Iraq, actually, because he trained me. But that's okay. another story. Oh, did but, he now? Yes, he did. Okay. Yeah. We would like to hear that story. Please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't really shared it in full. Where to begin? So I was literally begging my bosses to go to cover the Iraq war. And anyway, they kept looking at me going, there's no way that we're going to be sending you this inexperienced person. Like, it's my lifelong ambition to, to cover conflict, you know, from KAD, watching KAD and, you know, the Iranian embassy siege when I was younger. Anyway, so they finally said, OK, they relented. And John Humphreys had gone, Paxman had gone. They're like, OK, you, Silverton, can go <laughs> at Christmas. And frankly, just cover the Christmas dinner, you know. <laughs> you can cover the troops, yeah. You can cover the troops in their hats, you know, having Christmas dinner. And I thought, fine, whatever, I will go. But then said, but first you have to go on what's called a hostile environments course, which is, even as I say it now, I smile, um, six days and you get... Don't of, bankers do this for fun? Probably. You know, they get like fun kid kidnapped and someone sticks a hood over their yeah. head and shoves them in the back of their van and you know, that's what a stag night. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, picture that. So six days of basically getting tied up and had a hood over your head. So I was literally beside myself excited. And I'm you're such excited. a weirdo. <laughs> Just put me in a costume, any costume, when it's got sequins or hoods, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me. So I like turn up, you know, all really, really keen as mustard. And as I walk up the steps to this sort of stately home where they do this course, there's this fit as looks like action man, you know, sort of shaved head, you know, arms crossed over his um, chest. I thought, oh, he looks rather marvellous. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> literally looked at me as if I was sort of a piece of mud in his shoe. And um, although he did later admit that he did clock me. Anyway, then we spent the next sort of four or five days where you are literally put through your paces. Um, you're in a crowd scenario. He kept telling me that I talk too much, funny old thing. <laughs> and I was going to attract too much attention when I was out in Iraq and that I might be a kidnap threat as a result of it. Do you think he was basically nagging you? Yeah. <laughs> 
negging me. Yeah, you know, flirting with you by being, <sighs> by, being no, by no, giving no. you a hard time, like, I, like you're in the playground. Yeah, I felt like that, actually. It was my first experience of having a man that I really did fancy and was negging me, good word, mm. negging me. Mm. And so there was this frisson all week, but there was a point which you are taught how to behave on a checkpoint. So it's, you know, you can't flail your arms around and sort of be a bit giddy and all the rest of it. You've got to be really calm. You've got to show your palms so that, you know, I don't have a gun. You've got to be really calm and measured. And I had been uh, nominated as leader for that particular exercise and was totally sort of freaked out by these men jumping. I mean, who has a man jumping out at you with a balaclava, swearing at you, putting a gun underneath your chin, going, get out of the fucking car now. And you are literally sort of, so you're really heightened. And so this is when checkpoints go wrong. This is when checkpoints go wrong. And they start n- negotiating. And the point of that exercise is also to say to the team, you've got to stick together. Do not split up. Because what can happen, what could happen, is that someone will say, I want her. She can come with me. She can come and talk to our leader. And suddenly, before you know it, the, the team is fractured and that's it. So And presumably uh, as well, you're more vulnerable being a woman anyway. So exactly. it is better to yeah. stick together. So I was a leader. And I was trying lots of different negotiations and wasn't having any of it. And then one of the boys in the group sort of went, and they said, we need her, she's the leader. And it was Mike doing this. He was like, I need her, she's the leader, she can come with me. And he went, oh, okay then. (laughs) (laughs) He he sort of then took me off in the direction of the bushes, at which point I think we both felt really quite awkward. (laughs) What, you standing nose to nose in the bushes? Yeah, and you're really heightened. And I knew I was going off to Iraq not very long afterwards. So I had in my head, look, you know, things can happen and get out of control quite. So you are in that really, you know, heightened state of alert. So you're highly adrenalised. In the bushes with Action Man. Yeah. Stick to the story, Kate. <laughs> so, okay, there was, so there was a little bit of a bonding there, like as in no nothing, but this, this is a kind of a mutual kind of acknowledgement, I think, of this is interesting. So anyway, that exercise finished. And then we ended up where you really do get taken hostage. And there was a point at which um, we took all these notes down. And I'd been furiously writing notes about sort of we were going to cover this sort of ostensibly a a massacre in these woods. They create these scenarios, all very serious stuff. And of course, if you have anything on you, evidence, and you're a journalist going into the field to cover um, a very tricky story, uh, then if that gets picked up by the people who've carried out those massacres you're in big trouble when you say evidence you mean so I was we were being briefed before we were going out in this exercise and it described what um this obviously I'm make this I don't want to sort of make this sound really crass because it is done really sort of responsibly when it's done but you know they would say um they're they're a not very well organized army but it's a group of um men and they would give the ages they would oh, give so what they were briefing notes, you, basically. yeah the briefing notes and it would be saying you are to go to this point at which we believe there is a, a mass grave so we're on our way in this sort of land rover going on our way to cover obviously in this exercise this is not real to keep stressing that um, uh, you know, to cover this where this mass grave is. And of course, you know that you're going to get jumped at some point because that's the point of the exercise. So you're all in this Land Rover. And I sort of said, I was like, do you think we should get rid of our notes because they're really compromising? And there was a guy in the Land Rover and he was like, no, 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 that's fine. Because I thought, oh, okay, then put the notes back in my flat jacket. And of course, Mike then gives the bad guys the nod that I have these compromising notes. So I'm the one that is face down in the mud with someone's boot on my back going, and what have we here? Oh my God. <laughs> so, and, and my afterwards, he's like, look, the lesson in this is if it feels wrong, it is wrong. 
follow your instincts and don't you know and and I think that was as much as I learned really seriously on that course is actually you have to speak up and we're so used to maybe being overridden sometimes and I don't want to sound like a a weak-willed sort of lily-livered girl about it on the other hand I do think this happens quite a lot Mm, when we allow ourselves to get overridden and we can't do that so I would those are lessons that I would pass on to my daughter and I'm sure Mike would do the same yeah okay so your, your face is in the mud you've got a boot on your back where's Mike so Mike was at all points I think rather observing me as this sort of you know energetic sort of rather naive young woman who was throwing herself in with great gusto and um, and took it upon himself to really, he's like, if you're going out to Iraq, we really, really need to get you ready. And so we spent the next few days of of looking at everything from sort of negotiations, if you're taken hostage, from um, body language when you're dealing with things, how to protect yourself. And actually then when I did go to Iraq, I, you know, we were mortared. I was out on foot patrol. You know, I did the things that I felt. I wanted to be really immersed in it. So I was really grateful for those lessons. But um, we didn't get together till quite a few months afterwards there was this sort of did you stay in touch how did you leave it at the end yeah of this there course? were there were a few sort of bbc meetings that he was there at, and there was this sort of you know um dancing around it and then we then he phoned and just said we should like to meet up and oh. yeah and then that was kind of it and then yeah. although i was you know commitment phobic and then went on and blah, 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 that's it um but um so all of this culminated a number of years later in us getting married and on our wedding day mike stood up uh, in his speech, he said, little did I know, he said, when I had Kate gagged and bound and thrown in the back of a Land Rover, he said, it was the first day and the last day that I'd ever be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I couldn't get pregnant. And I only had one ovary, which is another story, but only one ovary. Which seemed to be working? <clears throat> well, I'd had, so this is a good thing. Do you know about AMH and all yes. of that? Yes, AMH and FSH. Okay, good. Yeah. So you've done all of that. So I went to uh, Professor Studd, who's sort of John a rather Studd. learned. Yeah, yeah. yes. Famous. Um, yes. And so I guess for the listeners <clears throat> who I'm sure know, um, AMH and FSH are all about egg reserve and equality, and they are what any woman who has not immediately got pregnant will go and have her bloods done to find out, right? Yeah. There is a theory also that if you have bad eggs at 39, you had bad eggs at 29, but I do think it's worth keeping an eye on your levels, mm. you know, on those on those, those those blood tests, which are not so mysterious. Yeah. Just and not being afraid to try. That's yeah. it. Take, if we can take charge and just think, actually, I will just find out what is my AMH. And I think, and I will be corrected on this, because I think it's... It's sort of something like 40 is the top uh, top figure. And, and as I do stand to be corrected on this, you'll need to check. But uh, it, let's just take 40 as a figure. When I went to see him, I was seven, which gives you an indication. That was at 35. When I next went to see him, when we were trying with without success, uh, when I was sort of nudging sort of 38, I was down to 0.2. Wow. So that's a yeah. very so that's that's a big The a- AMH is the one you want a high number and the FSH you want a low number. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, you know, so, so had how that, did that feel? Well, I mean, it was devastating. And I think that was, you know, there were, I remember very clearly sort of the on your knees in the bathroom sobbing over yet another, uh, you know, one line pregnancy test and just thinking, why did I not commit to my husband earlier? You know, and all of that. And I, I felt less of a woman. And I was, you know, to him sort of basically felt that I couldn't give him what I, you know, what I felt 
you know, of course you do, you sort of think this is what women should be doing and all of this stuff that went through my head at the time and my husband's amazing and he just said, look, he said, look, we all have stuff that's biologically wrong. He said, look at me, I'm going bald. <laughs> but you still love me. I mean, he's just amazing at kind of, you know, and we yeah. kept a diary of how we felt and he just, it was amazing that when I read his, eventually read his diary, because we sort of were told to write a diary because it would be really good just to get your feelings out. And when I read his, it was all about, I just don't want Kate to have to keep going through this horrendous Aww. IVF because he just couldn't bear that. And that was, that we did about five, five lots of IVF. Gosh. All failing. Um, and then we had lovely friends of ours who just said, look, kind of give it up. You know, you love each other, you've got this incredible relationship, and sometimes things just, and at the time, I remember thinking it was like a, you know, kind of a kick in the gut, because I just thought, oh my God, you know. But they just said, you seem to be putting your whole life on hold in trying to have a baby. And, um, and it, and put, I and thought, it you puts your what? relationship at risk, that stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, it, you know, it just, you're not living. Yeah. You're just living in this limbo and forever just going over, handing a credit card over, and it just, it wasn't, it wasn't a healthy time. And, so I thought actually, and someone said to me, you may, you're okay with the flowers within your reach. And I thought, yeah, I've got my soulmate, I've married my soulmate, and actually I have a lot. And so on the day that we got married, and I was 40, because obviously we'd been putting stuff off, and I was 40, and, um, and uh, that was the happiest day of my life, even though I'd come, I'd, I'd had to accept that we weren't gonna have children. And so we moved into our house like a month later, and, um, and then uh, we started the adoption process. So I started going sort of to get our CRB checks and everything. So I thought I've always wanted to have children in my life. And yeah, I thought, you think okay, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Exactly. Yeah. So I turned it round and I thought, right, we're gonna we'll we'll adopt or at least foster because you can mm. even you know temporarily foster kids, even just take them out on a Saturday afternoon. And I thought let's just start with that maybe. And um, a few months later, about sort of six weeks later, I sat in the makeup chair at the BBC and I had then my lovely makeup lady and I said, God, I feel so fat. You know, I've got this really tight my you know and everyone knew because obviously kind of I had talked about it and asked for loads of people for advice and actually I'd spoken about it in the press at that stage and she looked at me and she said do you think and I could tell she was just thinking I can't, can't even, say it can't say can't it go there yeah absolutely and I again felt like she'd pulled the rug from underneath me thinking god no and then but this comment just sort of sat with me and I went home my husband was away and uh and I took myself off to the gym, same gym that we do the Pilates at. <laughs> and um, and I, I remember, and I was in this cubicle, which is still the sort of infamous, and I bought two pregnancy tests, which killed me at the time, because I'd done so many of the darn things, and just, it had never, obviously. And I sort of did one, and it was one of those digital ones that tell you how pregnant you are. <laughs> it was like, you're really, really pregnant. <laughs> amazing. So oh, amazing. Just like, oh my God. Just, yeah, it was like, you're more than eight weeks or whatever the measurement was. What did you do? Oh my God, did another one. <laughs> <laughs> you just like, oh my, and I must have been a hell of a phone call. Did you then phone? What did you do? Did you phone? Oh, but literally beaming right now. So just, and he, I think he was in Nigeria. And then, then, um, so that was it. And of course, we never, I'd never even seen two lines before or whatever. And it was just this incredible thing. And I sort of just was walking around in a state of shock. And then, um, then I went to go and host an event about three nights later. Uh, oh, and then I went to see this amazing guy. So Professor Gita Nagand, who was incredible. He does a lot of work with older women and natural IVF, which is another, that's another podcast entirely. Um, and Stuart Campbell, uh, who's a very eminent um, 
uh, sort of obstetrician and, and, and he did the scan. So they were delighted for me because they'd seen me on a number of occasions before. So he'd scanned and it's like this white light and it was just incredible, the heartbeat and everything. Anyway, I went to do this event and just, uh, I'm going to couch this for obvious reasons for detail, but I, I basically... Had a bleed? Yeah, but <gasps> massive, like a, like, a, like a psycho in the shower bleed. Oh my gosh in this hotel, I was in black tie. Oh. And it was just, and I howled. I was, I think anyone walking up the corridor would have heard a wild animal howling. I just, it was the worst thing. I was just this pitiful mess in this corner of just this room. Um, and I went to A&E, all these people downstairs waiting in this black tie event, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so I ended up in A&E, a young student doctor, and it wasn't his fault but it was it was kind of an interesting one for anybody that does go through this to be really really certain because he just sort of said it does look like you've miscarried. Um, and of course, that's devastating. And again, I'm, so then I'm making another phone call to it's my husband, oh, my poor husband. Who yeah. Hasn't even come home. So he's thinking I'm going to come home, and I said no, just don't. It's okay, you know. I'll kind of get through. And I thought then if, if they scan you, <clears throat> no, no. And that that so. So I went home and I did think, God, if I was a smoker or a big drinker, I would have gone home and probably just down my sorrows. And the next day I phoned Stuart Campbell, Professor Campbell, and I just said, oh, I've, I've miscarried. And he said, and there's this long silence. And he said, just, would you mind coming in? He said, would you mind coming in? And he didn't tell me at the time, but he has scanned thousands upon thousands of women. And he... Anyway, he got me in. He thought yours looked like it was going to stick. Yeah. Yeah. And I went in, and there it was. Oh, my God, I'm going to cry. (laughs) (laughs) We're both gone. (laughs) Is this Wilbur? This is Clemency. This is Clemency. Is it me? Oh, God, we're all crying. I'm not really told that. So it it was like, yeah. So there there it was. was. Yeah, this white, white light beating. How many weeks were you? Uh, so I was, I would have been eight, so I think nine weeks. So he sort of knew, you know, it was a stayer. I mean, this was like a, like someone had turned a tap on bleed. I mean, it was really shocking. Yeah. But so you, you you so you almost had no doubt in your mind that it was over. Yeah, that was it. And I, and you know, yeah. And so thank goodness for him, obviously. God, thank goodness for him. And, uh, and then, and then, so then I went on to have clemency. So that was obviously a natural conception. And then I felt pregnant twice after that miscarried again twice but by then I started to get a bit cocky thinking <laughs> fine all right. I can take it oh, literally I'm getting pregnant at the drop of a hat <laughs> and so there was this bit of me and I do say this to a lot of the women that I now speak to who will contact me to say well what did you do and you know all of this and I say do you know what there was a bit of me that just thought come on then bring it on universe I've I've got my baby so actually I've I've gone as low as I possibly could go before that I know what that's like I know what it's like to be you know, to childless, and I accepted that. I've now got my baby, so actually I've won, you know, and I'm gonna have one last gasp. And so, and this is the other top tip actually, um, is you know the cheapest chips, the fertility sticks, not the expensive ones, they're about five quid for 50. The ones you pee on? Yes, but not the sort of big sort of, you know, elaborate ones, they're just small little strips of paper. They are very, hugely accurate, That's, that's what they use in hospitals. So you can go out and get lots of these cheapest chips. And I just thought, I was almost like tempting fate, just thinking, okay, so I've had two miscarriages. Eh, just shake it up a little bit. And I took these these strips, because I went back to see Gita, and she, oh, she scanned me, and she said, um, she said, my darling, you have seven follicles. 
and I thought I've never had that many in my life you know this is this is I'm 43 and she said don't I'm not gonna because can I do any natural IVF or anything she said no go away and go get pregnant and to hear you know a doctor of her standing so then I did these fertility sticks and you get that two lines which means actually there's an egg that's going to come down pretty soon um and you test in the afternoon not the morning for those ones and uh, that night was a lovely night and, <laughs> fun night fun times and uh, and then the next <laughs> did morning say, do you remember there was that thing on telly and when they, they, when they were going to have sex he'd go it's business time <laughs> so that night was business time except my husband never knew it was business time <laughs> I really? well because we'd got so caught up before in all the times of trying where it's like, oh, so it's he thought it was perfectly normal he to come home and find you in a negligee night. lounging yeah, in a doorway baby. <laughs> <laughs> Just another Tuesday night. Yeah, I, yay. No wonder he was a bit surprised. But so that was a good night. And then the next day he saw this stick and he was like, oh, I think a part of him thought, oh my God, is this now going to be every night until next you know, next month? And he went, are we trying again? And I said, no, it's done. And I just had you just knew. I knew. And, and that I was knew it would be, And that was Wilbur. And oh. I knew it would be a boy. And that, and I, I think I just got myself into a real place of balance. I just thought, I've, you know, I've kind of gone as low as I could go. I've had a lot of really good therapy, which I really also attribute to kind of being open to all things happening. And I just thought, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, let's see. And it, and it was, yeah. It's interesting what you were saying. Well, it's just back to what you were saying at the beginning, rather, that, um, that you just face the fear, right? So this is the fear. The fear is, as I'm going to lose the baby. But okay, the fear. But then on the other side of that, I might get a baby. So I'll just, I'll try. Yeah. It's that fear of failure that so often holds us back. And actually, yeah. if we're not afraid to try, Magic can happen. Yeah. And it yeah, doesn't so, always. So, 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 you know, <clears throat> I'm drawing a ridiculous parallel, but strictly come dancing, the worst fear is you fall in your ass and you're humiliated and you feel ridiculous. Um, you face that. And then the other worst fear is that you never become a mother and you face that. Yeah. And then it sort of made everything else possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I, know, and I know, and I'm not trying to make it sound easy because we No, we and there are lots through. of women out there I know who have, you know, also faced those fears and don't have the babies. So. Yeah. But I think it's that if we cannot be afraid to try, at yeah. least then we know. And at least we've opened ourselves up to the possibility. And do you know what? You're not, you know, having been in that space of saying, actually, we aren't going to be able to have children. That's it's also okay. okay. I think that's very interesting when you think about solo motherhood. Because those are women who don't feel they have the right to try because they're single. Yeah. But they're now they're discovering that they are still worthy of that effort mm. and they can still try. Mm. Um, and so I feel like this all those should... parameters are changing. Mm. And I feel like this should be true about the way that we lead our lives in everything, isn't it? Yes, to... pressing reset on a job, you know, where we choose to live, how we choose to live. Yeah, because particularly in our 40s, I mean, I'm 45, the, the idea of changing things is, is terrifying. And also because of the way that you think the world sees you. So the idea of making big changes is huge. Yeah. But, but you're you now a student again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've gone back to school. Yeah. So having experienced some psychological extremes, yeah. did you think you just look into it further from a different perspective? I think I thought having the children and seeing um, how therapy had helped me and then seeing the children and thinking, I'd quite like to give them a little bit of the, the wisdom that I have had passed down to me. And I'd always wanted to go back ultimately to, to sort of into counselling sort of psychotherapy 
and it kind of presented itself. I started working with a number of charities who are incredible, which is the Anna Freud Center um, and Place to Be. And then by July, I will be, provided I pass, I will be able to go into schools and help as a counselor one-on-one with children in the cl- in, in, in specialist classroom. So are you now going to be a multi-hyphenate? Are you going to be a broadcasting <laughs> oh, therapist? I don't know. Yeah, well, give me that six extra hours in the day. So at the moment, I'm looking at, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a number of things. All of them have their roots in um, child development and actually for adults as well, because it's just, yeah. you know, there's a lot of us that are facing all sorts. You know, I've got women who are on the phone to me kind of who are trying to get pregnant and then or, or at work and, and, and having a tough time. And it's just it's if I think there's something really powerful about womanhood and just sharing you know we all used to live in a tribal community this is why this is so lovely to yeah. come in and just kind of well we always say us. if we're not in it together we're not in it at yeah, all yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. and, and i think the more we talk about i mean annabelle and i just talk about or you know we've got to the point where we talk about every single tiny niggle or huge fear and it is like having kind of basically like walking therapy you know yeah. daily therapy which like is walking pneumonia oh, yeah. well <laughs> in, in, it normalizes it doesn't it if you can yeah. sort of say i'm feeling wobbly and they uh, you know my sister just even just having a conversation yesterday and she said i've been feeling a bit low and i said have you had your hormones checked because i've now got on to hrt which is another story yeah <laughs> hysterectomy before strictly that was fun <laughs> did you um, did you yeah bloody hell why because I had to. Oh, I had okay. to, yeah. I know, yeah, well, not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was my thought. Another personal that challenge. Was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just because I thought I'd try it, give it a go. <laughs> now, can you imagine I sat there and, and uh, in front of um, Alan Farthing, who won't mind me mentioning him. Alan Farthing, he's yeah, quite a, yeah. The guy that... uh, he's amazing. And I did sit there and he was taking his notes and he's like, right, okay. So he said, so, you know, um, you had your ovary mo- removed when you were 27 and so he was going through and he's, I said, yes, and, you know, these, uh, my, my AMH was at 0.2 and I could tell he was sort of thinking, oh, poor woman, you know, she's really... So I said, yes, that was at 40. Then at 41, I gave birth, had two more pregnancies. 43, I gave birth. And he looked up and he went... <laughs> So what do we know in the med? He said, what do we doctors know? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And it does, and, and again, I'm very sort of careful not to say there's a miracle around every corner. No, but we but are it does all show more you. than our biochemistry. That's yeah. all, aren't we? Yeah. It's not always it just about nice the numbers It was nice to hear him say that. It was like, actually, yeah. w- you know, don't always feel that because someone says you're 0.2 AMH that, you know, things can't happen. Well, I think that's important because I think women get very intimidated by medicine mm. and by doctors and, you know, particularly if they're very distinguished and they've been doing it for a long time and you get too frightened to ask questions that could make a difference. Yeah. And there's other stuff that we can do naturally that even if it doesn't get us to a desired goal that we might have, it's going to make us feel better. And I think we shouldn't discard those. We shouldn't become so medicalized. I'm not talking about obviously sort of really acute medical symptoms, but, but sometimes just going and rebalancing ourselves and nutrition and all of that stuff uh, and talking and, and being among good women, I think, is mm. is a very healing process. And we shouldn't forget that. It's all ancient wisdom. It is. Conversation, acupuncture, meditation. You know, it's it, it really is. It's, it's not it, none of this is newfangled. Yeah. Well, the conversation doesn't all have to be worthy and oppressively sincere with the head tilt and the universal language of pity. You know, no. it can also just be lively yeah. and connecting. Well, that is a lovely release, laughter, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Well, Kate Singleton, today you made us laugh, you made us cry, you made us do all sorts of things, <laughs> sweat, yeah. um, and just huge, huge yeah. thanks. And Thank please you come so back. Much. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Annabelle Rivkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middalt. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. And we'll just leave you with this thought. Oh, people know your worth. They just hope you don't. (laughs) 